Hello, and welcome to the autumn edition of Plants and Pipettes. <laughs> what makes this or the spring. autumn edition? Because you're wearing black. I, feel, I, I had to... Um, so, I feel like the signs are there now. The mushrooms are coming out. I saw some geese off out of here this morning. Um, the leaves are sort of getting a little bit crispy and falling. The apples are ripening. And I just had to put a jacket on, which I obviously haven't worn for like six months. And I put my hand into my pocket and immediately screamed because six months ago, I thought it was a good idea to pick some holly leaves. Um, <laughs> and some of them are really, really, really spiky. And the... You know, I know the reason I picked them as well, because I had three different leaves and one of them was super spiky, one was medium spiky, and one of them was smooth on the edges. And I remember there was a while when you were like obsessed with this idea that goats Stand. are somehow... Okay, look, we can agree that like some sort of... It's it's a concept that um, the leaves, like the plants respond to being cut or gnawed at or damaged, which can be herbivory pressure by producing leaves that are spikier. Um, and obviously, like in in common garden situations or like park situations, people are trimming them, so that's kind of similar to the herbivores. But Yarm loves this because there are goats involved. Anyway, I had deliberately <laughs> picked. Is that is that it? No, no. My like my favorite thing about this this according to one study that I had to look up years and years ago, um, it's epigenetics that are involved there, and oh. that's what I found but, so cool about it that that they did they sampled like the three leaf kinds that you sampled like the prickly ones, the medium ones, and the non-prickly ones, and they looked at the methylation level of the DNA, and they found that there was differences between oh. on the same plant between the different stages of being prickly. And so they realized that's apparently what, like, when goats are eating them, they, like, write epigenetic information in the DNA that then leads to more prickly leaves. Um, okay, but goats, goats were involved somehow. Goats were like, definitely involved, yeah, but I, that was not the reason I loved it so much. Goat, goat mediated epigenetics. Okay, anyway, so that was one of the many signs that <laughs> <laughs> it's getting cold now. I like that you, like, usually um, what you find is, like, either used uh, tissues or money, if you're lucky, in your, in your pockets, and you found just, like, a year old holly leaves, and I, I really like that. I don't, I don't know what to say. I think I wanted to show them to you. I think that's why I picked them. I wanted to be like, look, Yoram, it's so actually... Wh where are they then? Why? Um, they're now in my boyfriend's apartment and I will <laughs> shout at him if he tries to throw them out. <laughs> no, they were a gift. <laughs> yes. They look dry and old, uh, literally trash, but they were a gift. <laughs> All plant parts are precious. I'll just tell him he's not very good with plants. I'll just tell him that, like, if he keeps them for long enough, they'll regenerate. <laughs> will he care to regenerate them? Like, you can tell me that, but I, I will tell you then I don't care to regenerate them, so I will still throw them out. Yeah, maybe not. Maybe not. <laughs> what have you been up to, Yoram? Um, I, I I said I think two weeks ago now that I found a new job, and now I can finally say what it is because I signed the papers and handed them in and everything. Hey. And I'm I'm working now or soon beginning of next month for the prototype fund, which is not at all plant related, but rather like open tech, open source stuff. Um, they're giving out money for people for to develop a software prototype for half a year, um, and then they can get more funding for that stuff. And it's really cool, uh, and I'm really excited to do communications work for them. And that was my like I'm literally every day that I'm working my current job, I'm looking forward to starting my new job and. It's sort of a good sign for me 
like i'm so eager I, i really want to get going with this other thing so this is sort of what drives me these days i'm just like counting the days until i can finally do a different job and specifically this job um and so yeah that's that's my exci excitement of the last yeah two three weeks now pretty cool so it's <laughs> it's the start of october right so yeah, yeah we're okay a little bit of time but then yeah. like we'll be able to see your things on the internet yeah i guess so yeah i mean it's it, i think for to the outside world it won't be as exciting because it will literally be stuff like tweets and blog posts for like a specific german um early fundings thing <laughs> sure so <laughs> i don't know if any of our listeners care but i do care because i mean i can supportively like every single thing you tweet if that helps <laughs> yeah definitely always for for the algorithm all my like i will ask my mother to get a twitter account just to boost <laughs> us there um Yeah. My mom already loves you. I'll ask my mom to, to like it as well. <laughs> yeah, I'm just. I've. It's, it has been rare that I was that excited for a new job coming up. Like I, I never started a job that I from the get go didn't like, but uh, I was always sort of curious and a little bit uncertain. careful and uncertain what what's coming up. But now I'm really like I. I love the team that I had to chat uh, that I could talk to already. Like the the stuff that they're doing. Like I'm just. I'm uh, uh, in love. I, I have a crush on my new job <laughs> before I, mean, I haven't even also, started it. <laughs> I think this is the first time you've also sort of chosen to leave a job mm -hmm. and chosen to start a new job as opposed to sort of jumping from, I mean, when we were in academia, this is often the way you're sort of jumping from contract to contracting and grabbing things as they came. And even when you went into science communication, they were usually grant-based quite short-term contracts and and then you sort of had the opportunity to extend your job and thought no it's not for me yeah and then looked around spent a little bit of time on that's that's a nice situation to be in that's really yeah yeah it's really uh it's 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 a really good feeling to be that excited about work which often like to most people is not like the, the joy of their day is being like oh finally i can go to work yeah shall we talk about some plant science <laughs> yes please <laughs> i i have a a favorite plant this week <gasps> my favorite plant so um my favorite plant this week is named after an incredible hashtag girl boss um, <laughs> and is in fact just me deliberately retaliating to one of Yoram's earlier rants about whether Queen Elizabeth II can be a girl boss given that she sort of won her role by genetic lottery rather than worked her way up into the role, let's say it that way. Um, so I was, uh, for those of you listening in the far distant future, this is the week that we saw Queen Elizabeth pass and it's been a pretty big thing here in London. Um, it's going to be a pretty big thing for the next five, six, seven days. The coffin has just arrived into London and there's queues that can go up to six miles. I don't know what that is in kilometers, but I assume it's quite a lot, a lot of kilometers also. <laughs> Many kilometers. Um, Yeah, I think there's so far two miles of people and there's the p potential to like extend that up to six miles to go and sort of see the the body lying in state, sort of. I think you see the coffin covered the co in a... You don't think, a, uh, yeah. Not even a coffin a, with like a, what's it called? Like a flag on top of it? There's some cloth on top of it, yeah. yeah, yeah like I've a seen little it on crown. TV today. Yeah. yeah, we're just watching that. You don't get to see the actual body, which is probably for the best um 
but that's a thing that's happening right now. So I was looking up, of course, to see if there were any plants that were named after Queen Elizabeth, because as we know, famous characters um, do often tend to get these things named after them. And in the case of the royal family, it was often sort of given to the queen as a, you know, honorific gift. You know, she will visit somewhere and they say, here's something we named after you. So I was looking through and realistically, a lot of the things that are named after QE2 are not very exciting. There's a kind of pink Queen Elizabeth II rose. So this is like a cultivated rose. It's nice. It's kind of pretty. Um, And it was sort of created and, well, at least like given her name as part of her platinum jubilee, which is some years back now. Fine, it's a rose. There's also a camellia um, japonica. So this is like the colourful camellias. Again, pink looks very similar to the rose, to be honest, but it's a camellia. Um, There's also a lilium. Again, it's pink. (laughs) It looks like one of these normal lilies. There's also another jubilee celebration rose. It's also pink. There's another rose. It's also pink. There's a lot of repetition in this um i don't know guys we could have (laughs) do you know if she if that was her favorite color did she ever is there something where she publicly stated that pink roses are her favorite and therefore all of the breeders when they had a pink rose they were oh yeah this must be the queen's favorite i don't she must have liked pink i mean i guess she wore pink hats sometimes i don't i don't personally know enough about her i'm not enough of a royalist to have like researched her favorite colors to be honest but there's also a rhododendron that's kind of pink there's also a clematis which is kind of pink so i i don't know maybe some people just start you know like that thing where like somebody gives somebody a gift and then like you have like the the mug with the polar bear on it and then everybody else is like oh you've got that polar bear mug you love must love polar bears and they just like keep giving you like polar like stuffed toys and that's then, exactly like, what hat i and- thought that she like <laughs> inadvertently <laughs> i actually looked it up with the queen elizabeth's favorite color and it's blue <laughs> yeah they just decided that blue was too hard we all know that making blue roses it's kind of like the big thing in in rose breeding it's like impossible to get a truly blue rose so maybe they were just like you know what pink good enough So realistically, this is all kind of a bunch of pink plants and none of them are like actual discovered species. eh? They seem to, as far as I can tell, they seem to all be these kind of cultivated. So um, these very commercial uh, ornamental plants that have been cultivated um, to give different colors and different smells and stuff like that. So I think honestly speaking, not very exciting. The only one that kind of stood out was um, a dendrobium. So this is an orchid species. And this was named after the Queen during one of her visits when she went to Singapore, Malaysia and Brunei. So these kind of orchids are very, very common in that area. And like sort of Singapore is quite famous for having these very beautiful, very exotic orchids. And I was looking um, because, of course, of the Queen's death now, there have been quite a lot of articles about the different plants that are named after the Queen. And there's one article on the Deccan Herald. I don't know what that is, but it's a news site and it starts off with Elizabeth is majestic, hardy and very fashionable, said a top Singapore flower curator, referring not to the late monarch, but to an orchid named after the queen. <laughs> so, yeah, I think that was the most exciting of them. I particularly like the, des- the descriptions of the plants. So they, they say that Dendrobium Elizabeth is a majestic, robust and resilient plant. It's kind of like how Queen Elizabeth carried herself. <laughs> um, yeah. 
nice. But overall, it's kind of a little bit of a boring collection, I would say. So. Yeah, I looked up what our queen, um, Angela Merkel, if she had a name, flower <laughs> named after her. And um, there was a, a grower as well that did like a commercial breed of orchid that's named after Angela Merkel. You can buy it for 10 bucks, quite cheap. Okay. Um, <laughs> was named after her for her 65th birth, uh, birthday. And um, the whole description is smaller flowering hybrid, nice and easy grower. So that's the full way of describing yeah. the plant that, that, that was dedicated to her, to her birthday. I mean, this is in a, like some catalog here. I don't know if there has been somewhere a publication. I couldn't find it right now uh, that had more beautiful w words for that. But I mean, that's the thing, like, I would love to have some sort of species named after me, but like, no matter what it is, it's either going to be something that's kind of like a bit dull, but pretty, in which case I'll be offended because I hope I'm not dull and like just pretty. I mean, obviously, yes, also pretty, but not just just pretty. Um, or it's going to be something where like, you know, it's a species of crow with a particularly large beak and I'll just be like okay thank you I kind of already knew that like or like a mammal with thinning hair or whatever my other you know you'd be like it'll just really pick on those insecurities that you already had so I think there's like this double-edged sword of having any species named after you yeah corvus teganii <laughs> what's what species would you I mean obviously I would yeah I would really love some sort of like crow like animal to be named after me but yeah i wouldn't mind a bird like a, a, yeah. a weird clever bird that somewhere in a jungle picks apart <laughs> the, the gear of people that come there to study it yeah just like a tiny bit of an <laughs> you want it to be right yeah, like i think yeah. my crow is definitely not yeah I've, not a generous <laughs> i think when i was eight or ten years old or something i've seen a documentary about these kia birds in new zealand and how they were completely picking apart the camera team's <laughs> van that they yeah. ca came there with and put pulled out all of the rubber everything and since then i'm really fond of this bird so <laughs> i wouldn't mind having a new variety of kia named after me and if you're a plant if i'm a plant then i want to be i think i want to be a moss i want a moss like a i was thinking i want to be a moss too yarm that's why we're friends we both <laughs> want to be mosses yeah that, that grow on opposite sides of the same tree like one of us is a bit more in the sun the other a bit more in the shade but both of us like small ground dwelling like it humid <laughs> and that's that way we could also be jerks because that's kind of this idea that like if you're lost in the the forest you the the moss is growing on like the north side in the northern mm -hmm. this is kind of the because it wants to grow away from the south of the sun is i think that's the idea um but if we both deliberately grew on different sides, like that would be our whole purpose of being. We'd just be like <laughs> trick people who are already lost in the forest. We're like, ha now you don't know. <laughs> and I have to know that like the, the Tigani moss is the trickster moss that actually grows on the south side <laughs> <laughs> to confuse hikers. <laughs> Excellent. Um, if reincarnation's real, I just want to register, like lodge that one in right now. <laughs> I thought it was just named after so, but okay, yeah, re reincarnation, I'm also up for it, just being a, a, a moss. <laughs> oh. Oh, yeah, I went I went a step further in my head with that one than I had actually verbalized it. Okay, um, Yoram, fun facts? Uh, yeah, from mosses to ferns. I found a story about ferns that are DNA hoarders. Uh, there have been a couple of papers coming out, actually, um, I think even published back to back or, or like in short, short succession to one another. Uh, and what they did is that they looked, had a closer look at the ferns DNA because ferns are very pe uh, peculiar with the genome structure. There's like the, the largest fern uh, or the fern, the fern with the largest um, 
genome, that's the word, genome mm -hmm. has 720 pairs of chromosomes. Uh, that's many more than I try to remember how many humans have. I forgot. 46. 46, yeah. 46 pairs, that many? But 20, 23 pairs. Yeah, and 23 46. pairs. So they have yeah. 720 pairs, so over 1,400 um, individual chromosomes. Um, but this is just the biggest one. That's not the one that was actually studied. The the, the one with the many chromosomes is uh, Ophioglossum reticula uh, reticulatum. Uh, but they actually studied also Phila spinulosa um, and then um, Maidenhofern, Ariantum, Capillus veneris, and the sea fern, which is Ceratopteris ricardii. Uh, and specifically for the sea fern, they composed a whole genome of um, 7.4 gigabases of the DNA in 39 chromosome pairs so that's not as massive but bigger for example in humans um, and they had some interesting findings in there um, so the big question was always like we knew that DNA like genomes from ferns are huge and the often when you find huge uh, genomes in plants it's from genome duplication so just at one point something goes wrong in the cellular division cycle and instead of separating the chromosomes during meiosis they are just retained in one cell and suddenly there's twice as many in them and in plants that's not lethal in in most animals and other organisms that actually kills the organism and it doesn't go continue to grow or the egg doesn't continue to grow in plants that works and so we find these whole genome duplication events quite often and so it was believed that in, in ferns they just did that a couple of times to get to these massive sizes but now as they could look at the sequence data of it they found that it's not actually simple genome duplication and uh, that was retained um, they found lots and lots of transposons and transposons are these comparatively smallish structures like dna sequences that can jump within the genome they can copy themselves and insert themselves in a different part of the genome again. Um, I think they were, I don't know if they were discovered, but studied heavily in maize. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe you've seen like these, these colorful maize uh, cobs with the, the colored kernels um, that yeah. are the results of transposons jumping for each individual kernel during the cell division. They change a little bit the DNA through these transposons and it gives them these, this pattern. Um, and apparently in ferns, this happens a ton and also, uh, the ferns are really bad at getting rid of it. So they just retain them where other uh, organisms have some mechanisms to purge sort of excess DNA from time to time. Um, they don't. They simply retain it. They keep it around. And that's why they're just sort of hoarding all of this DNA. Um, whenever it's duplicated in small stretches and reinserted, they just uh, keep it because it, it, mm -hmm. it doesn't cause any harm, apparently. So there's no pressure to lose it. And so they don't. It's it's taking a lot of energy. I mean, it's it's kind of resources to have all of this stuff. And then I don't know if you've got just like multiple copies or are you like silencing some of the things that like how. Yeah, that's that's we don't know yet. Like we don't know how how and why they are behaving like this. Um, there has apparently there was also like uh, quite a lot of um, traces for horizontal genome trans or gene transfers from from bacteria, for example, that they just copied into their uh, the ferns copied into their genome and kept um so yeah it must the upkeep of this genome so just the simple duplication of this genome takes much more energy than in other organisms but apparently not enough to be a meaningful selection pressure to get rid of it again i'm going to do something that's in exactly the opposite direction from dna and is at the level of kind of like communities and 
mm, habitats and things like that for plants. So, Yoram, I have a question for you, which is what would you think of if I told you the word copy? Copy? Um, I, I think of gene copies. Like, okay, that's the problem because it's actually a real word. Let's try another one. What about... <laughs> What about the word monadnock? Monadnock? I think of a butterfly, like a monarch butterfly. What about born hearts? <laughs> That's the name of an actress, I think. She played in one of those Marvel movies. Okay, and finally, what if I said Inselberg? <laughs> I mean, that's just an area in Berlin. I mean, it's the cool where all the cool kids go. They go to Inselberg, and then that's where you find all that's the pops where and they clubs. Party. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so let's be a little bit more realistic. <laughs> if we're talking about a habitat where you might find some plants, what would an Inselberg be? Um, Given the direct German translation, yeah, I mean, you can this do this. A, <laughs> I mean, it's an island mountain directly translated. It's, so it's yeah. the. It's an island on a mountain top, so in a like a, sometimes you have these crater lakes, and they can have islands in there. Or is it sort of from like ecosystem standpoint? This is an isolated community that's like like it would be on top of a mountain, or like it would be on an island, so it can't mix as much with other groups around it. You've you've somehow like completely avoided the razor there. Like you've gone to to. Too way too complicated <laughs> thing. It's literally just like a little mountain that like is popping out. So it's like a little rocky outcrop, like a little knob, a ridge, a hill <laughs> that just sort of comes out, and it's basically an island of a rock that's in the middle of a landscape. Okay. And so all of the other things, the the copy, it's apparently it's the same thing. It's coming from the the Dutch word for head. Like kopje is the the cute way of saying like head in Dutch. Um, Bornhard is also a type of these Inselberg, this this kind of rocky mm-hmm. outcrop. And I mean, the most famous example, at least to me, is Uluru, so the big rocky thing in the middle of Australia. So that's an Inselberg. This is an example of an Inselberg, yeah. But basically kind of a, yeah, a rock that's sitting out in a, a landscape. And so I was kind of, I came across this word kind of randomly today. And then I was thinking about, okay, so you've got these Inselbergs. What does that mean? Like, are there certain types of, are, are there any plants anyway? Because they're often just like kind of granity outcrops or like these things that look quite sparse, vegetatively speaking. So it's not kind of a gentle sloping mountain. It's just like a blub in the landscape. Mm-hmm. So... Of course, the answer is like, are there plants? The answer to that is, of course, yes, there are plants. There's plants e- everywhere. So there are plants growing on these things. <laughs> but I was trying to look into the research behind it, and there hasn't been very much done. Um, some people mention the fact that because they are basically insuls islands, there can be quite a lot of disparity in the plant communities that you see, even between like fairly like geographically close and like similar-looking inselbergs, which is probably a problem for these communities as far as like long-term success goes if something happens to their island because they are organisms that are specialized for living in these little weird islands but then they might not be able to get off the island if something goes you know there's not a mm-hmm. good chance for dispersal necessarily if, if something goes wrong but what I also liked was that they have certain types of plants that might be a little bit more interesting so um, above all, they have things like these poikilohydric plants. So these are like resurrection plant kind of things. So because they're effectively living on rocks, they have the ability to get very, very dry and then come back to life. So they might be a, a nice area for finding 
these kind of cool resurrection plants, which are always exciting, as well as some other sort of um, extremophile kind of plants, so succulents, um, also things like carnivorous plants. So again, if you're you're not really living in soil, you might be turning to other ways to get your nutrients. And they also had um, a lot of these cryptogamic crofts. So this is um, the cryptograms of these kind of cyanobacterial lichen-y things. Um, mm-hmm like very sort of small crusts that you find also in other extreme environments like uh, deserts and stuff like that. So I think it's it's one of these things where it seems like not much is known about these environments, or at least they haven't been super well studied, but they could have a potential to have these extreme plants that are always interesting when it comes to understanding how how plants can do what they do, generally speaking, but also they can give sort of nice... Um, sort of tools as far as the adaptations that they have and, and their own enzymes or genes or whatever like that. So Yeah. Yeah, those are insular bugs. Yeah, it's usually in the extremes that we that we find the stuff that's then really really interesting for the application as well. I mm. mean I always think of like the polymerase that we're using in a lab that's coming from like an extremophile bacterium that's can can survive temperatures over 100 uh, degrees Celsius. Uh, recently, I talked to a researcher who's working with extremophile algae for technical applications because it just makes it so much easier for sterilization of your whole system if you anyway are running the setup at very alkaline um, uh, conditions, for example, where any anything else is anyway dying. So only your organism, your extremophile organism is happy. So um, yeah, these are always sort of treasure troves of interesting stuff when you look at these places that are a little bit out of the ordinary. Speaking of extremophiles and biological applications, very <laughs> quick um, shout out to a female scientist. Diversity in the place. Science. So this is a little bit cheating because it's not really a plant scientist, but it is somebody who does more molecular biology and also, as I just mentioned, has a history in the kind of applied molecular biology kind of biotechnology stuff. Um, Her name is Renee Vegzen. Vegzen is what I would pronounce it, but I also like I did like four hours of duolingo polish so don't don't take my word for it you know one day we would actually do this properly sorry for the mispronunciation (laughs) um so she has now been um selected to serve as the director of a sort of newly created uh agency which is the advanced research projects agency for health so focusing on health there but she comes from a background where she's um, been sort of the manager and involved in things related to sort of synthetic biology, as well as, um, yeah, this very applied um, kind of science. And originally, it looks like she worked maybe in yeast and with like heat shop proteins and stuff like that in Heidelberg in Germany. Huh. But yeah, cool. Just to mention, um, not a plant scientist, but somebody who's kind of sort of our field adjacent i would say <laughs> yeah yeah and it's it's always cool when you when uh, molecular biologists get somewhere where where their knowledge is required because i feel very often this is a sort of elusive field in in the public eye like it's something that's too complicated for many people so having somebody in a uh, powerful position there who understands that uh, i think can be quite useful uh, I actually want to go back to the topic before, to the Inselbergs. I have something, I found a story that looked at the biodiversity and measure, measurements of biodiversity. And they 
wanted to compare different habitats and let's like for this example to keep it simple here let's say there's just like the rainforest and the tundra for example and mm -hmm. in general you would say the rainforest is much more biodiverse it has more uh, species living there be it plants or other things in this case they specifically looked at plants than the tundra so in this study they used um, their own database to look at the biodiversity on different scales so when you look at hectares or even larger areas then you can make these comparisons where the rainforest is much more diverse than the tundra and other um, biotopes like that but when you go to a smaller scale so if you just use a couple of square meters the rainforest actually is as diverse as the tundra or the tundra is as has as many species as the same small plot um, in the rainforest. So this can change our perception of biodiversity if we look at smaller scale ecosystems where even in a tundra that we would call sort of poorer in species in species number even then you can have the same local density of species as you find in a comparative area in the rainforest um, and this can then change uh, how we approach conservation efforts because sometimes it might be more useful to just conserve specific small patches of land that are high in biodiversity even though you would consider the entire area as not as interesting for conservation uh, whereas in other places like for example the rainforest it is an advantage to have a large area that's protected because you have lots and lots of these small patches sort of side by side where in the tundra, these patches are spread out further apart um, of, of higher density of, um, of different species. And yeah, this is just something that I found uh, interesting in terms of thinking about biodiversity and also interesting for like, the, the future, how we actually decide on how to protect species, where um, this sort of patent island approach of small areas of conservation can be good in some uh, areas and can be bad in some other areas and having more detailed analysis of of biodiversity can help with deciding what to do okay so talking of biodiversity this is actually a follow-up on something we've talked about before on the podcast we've talked about it in the context of coffee but you're just had to do a little edit and remind me that i've also talked about this in the context of this thing which is cocoa so uh, three weeks ago we discussed a plants people and planets article um, one of my favorite journals by the way which discussed the collection of different native accessions of theobroma cacao which is the cocoa um, from the ecuadorian amazon and they were looking for basically diversity of cocoa and this is like really important to get um sort of plants that have different properties that might be helpful in global change under global change but it also can be helpful because different plants can have different tastes and one thing that we did apparently mention at that time was that they had collected all these plants and they mentioned the potential of them as new genetic resources but they didn't actually go ahead and taste them so now there's a follow-up article that's also come out in the same journal. Um, it seems to be by sort of an overlapping collection of authors. So it does seem to be sort of like a true research follow-up by that group. And in this case, they are doing um, genotyping of 200 different trees and then characterizing the aromatic volatile compounds and sensorial quality of the dried fermented beans. So this is kind of the, the testing for the flavor profiles of these cacao beans. 
And then they did a genome-wide association study. So this is basically where they're mapping difference that they see in the genes to these different characteristics they've measured. So these kind of flavor profiles and using that to try to understand which different elements of which genes can be mapped um, to which flavors. And they mentioned that they identified some genes that were related to giving chocolate its more floral and fruity aromas. And those have already been discussed in previous studies, so that was less novel. But they also found some new candidate genes that were related to a sort of more woody aroma and more spicy aromas. So cool new stuff. We might be getting some interesting new chocolates coming through at some point. We can only hope. Um, and then they also finally sort of link that back to the plant itself because as much as some of us would like to believe that the plants are producing these chocolatey beans for our benefits, <laughs> probably not really the case. Um, and they sort of say that their results that they find sort of support this overall hypothesis that the things that we happen to find aromatic and tasty are probably related to defense for the plant. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's usually when we can't really figure out what, why it's dead and we're like, oh, yeah, it's like some, some bugs hate it. And so that's why they're making it. And very often, well, like, also, I mean, in this case and also with coffee, like these flavor profiles only come out when you do the complex fermentation, which is mm -hmm. not, how, you know, so you start with something that could be a few chemical processes away or something. And that's mm -hmm. what's a defense compound. And it just happens that when you've roasted, it tastes great. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I found a story about uh, sort of another thing that could make crops much more interesting. They probably won't taste much better, uh, but they might be more resistant to drought and heat. And for that, we have to talk again about uh, different types of photosynthesis. Um, Tegan, what is the C3 photosynthesis again? Remind me because I literally can't <laughs> piece it together right now. <laughs> So basically, the C3 is kind of your standard type of photosynthesis. Um, I think like something like 90% of plants do that. It's mm -hmm. basic. You make a product which has three carbons, that's the name. And then there's an alternative, which is C4. And there you make a carbon with a product with four carbons um, as the first step. And that's, that's, that's the name. And the, the basic difference that we're interested in is that C4 plants are supposed to be a little bit better at dealing with drought and heat. So that's why there's a lot of fascination, but a lot of the crops that we eat are in fact C3. So a lot of the interest in C3 versus C4 comes from that application and crop point of view of like, what if we make our C3 crops C4? Will they be better? Will they survive in a drying world? That kind of thing. Yeah. And uh, important for C4 is also that they physically separate the part where the carbon carbon dioxide is fixed into a different molecule. So it's first um, fixed into a smaller molecule and then channeled through to Rubisco where it's then converted to CO2 and then uh, that sort of concentrates carbon dioxide about Rubisco, which does the carbon fixation reactions, and that makes it more efficient. And then there's a third kind that's often gets overlooked, and that's the CAM, CAM. photosynthesis, <laughs> C-A-M. And that stands for Crassolian acid metabolism. And there they don't physically separate these two reactions, the fixation of carbon or the, the, like the uptake of carbon dioxide into a soluble form, uh, and then the fixation of carbon. They temporarily... Um, separate those. So at night, they let in carbon dioxide and during the day, they convert it into um, uh, organic carbon through Rubisco. And so this is yet another thing that some plants, for example, pineapple, um, 
evolved uh, and uh, that helps with uh, with drought specifically because they can during the day they can keep their stomata closed because they don't have to take in carbon dioxide and so not, there is less water evaporation and then at night when the temperatures are cooler they actually suck in all of the carbon dioxide and then store it until the sun comes up again and they can convert it into organic carbon um, that's the cam metabolism And so uh, this is my favorite plant this week. Um, this They found a plant that's called Portulaca oleracea, also commonly known as purslane, that apparently does both. It both it does C4 metabolism and CAM metabolism um, in the same plants. And this is really weird because usually we find them individually, but they, could, they did metabolic, uh, metabolic uh, analysis and they found like the, the molecules involved in both of these processes in uh, in the same plant in parallel and apparently that wasn't a disadvantage but rather a big a, a growth advantage for this plant because it was um, drought resistant and could deal with the heat much better and uh, so this is now really interesting because um, they first of all it could be interesting for the engineering into crops just try to get both of these uh, the the enzymes like the sets of enzymes that are necessary for that in in the plants and apparently they can coexist and also it means that these four, two processes are more compatible than we thought previously which would mean that probably there are more species that do the same it's it's unlikely that only one individual species mm -hmm. evolved that it's much more likely that we find additional things um, i mean this is a weed that they looked at so this is not com uh, like a, a crop plant that's that's interesting so if we w would analyze more of these understudied um weirdos like little weeds little plants that are have no previous interest to, to them we might find more of these plants we might find more of these combination of metabolisms and that could actually help us then to engineer this in the end um, i mean this is not like a simple thing now it's not that now that we found this weed we can just like copy and paste whatever it's doing and now we have crops that are much better at drought and heat at the same time but it informs us a little bit more about the processes there all right so on the topic of crops this is just a very quick update to mention that the genetically modified tomatoes which have a very bright purple color have now been given the go-ahead to sort of be served up in the u.s obviously not in europe but in u.s they have now sort of passed all of the health tests and they look like they're fine and it could be that by next spring we if we go to the u.s we'll be able to eat purple tomatoes and these are tomatoes that were developed back in 2008 the publication came out in nature biotechnology in that year um, and it was basically the use of certain transcription factors, which were originally taken from Snapdragon, um, that sort of upregulated the production of anthocyanins. So anthocyanins have this potential antioxidant capacity. In the paper, they also fed their purple tomatoes to mice. Um, cancer susceptible mice, as it turns out, and they found that the mice supplemented with this diet um, actually had an extension of their lifespan. So there's sort of this this link to health for these tomatoes, but also they look really pretty. So if you want to eat um, purple tomatoes, maybe wait until they're actually available, but then do quickly jet over to the US um, to get some <laughs> of these. 
Yeah, I, uh, I think I've heard first about them in an article, I think I even mentioned on here, uh, from the New York Times, that's called Learning to Love GMOs. And it's not talking yeah. only about this tomato, but also, in a, uh, and it has it as the featured image on top of the article. So if you want to see a very pretty picture, um, check that out as well. And yeah. It's, yeah, it's, these have been sort of going through the regulatory processes across the the last I don't know few years I guess now. Yeah, and it's I fourteen find it, years since. I, the I find it really interesting because it's a new generation of uh, genetically modified organisms. Before we always cared about things that were relevant to the farmers, like uh re resistances against certain pests or uh, herbicides but this was not important to the consumer but now we can actually mm. make things that have a different quality that see, you see on the shelf like you don't see on the shelf that you that you could use glyphosate during the growth or that you could use uh that it ha produce bt toxin against some beetles like you could not see that when you look at the thing on the shelf but now you can see that the tomato is purple and you can then learn that this has higher antioxidant um, activity and that might be like a health that there might be a health effect of those so i'm curious what that does to public opinion yeah this is actually one of the debates that always comes up with genetic modification of food so there's the idea that like we we might be more comfortable with genetic modification that stops a problem so that's one thing you're stopping the problem of pests but so to sort of amplify what we have as far as you know nutrition or or looks or something like that that's kind of we already have the food so that that sort of seems different for for us who are very privileged already and don't have the the strong need for for example vitamin a like in golden rice um so there's sort of there's a bit of a Dis, like a, a disjoin between the two things i mean yes you don't see it but also it's the idea of like now you're modifying the food itself rather than the plant um and in the article that i first saw on this which is on ifl science um they were mentioning they were actually comparing this to tomatoes that came out in the 90s and we've talked about these before it's the flavor saver tomatoes and these are tomatoes that basically just have a longer shelf life so mm -hmm. and then there's quite famous images where you see two tomatoes sitting by side by side and one of them is like shriveled and really disgusting looking and the other one looks like a normal plump tomato which i mean that in itself is kind of a weird image because you start to think why why is that one not breaking down what's what's got it looks just kind of freakily plastic that it's not doing that and they mentioned that you know back in the 90s these flavor saver tomatoes flopped there was fear of franken foods and people just didn't get into them and now it's 25 years later and they're sort of wondering if we have moved on i guess we'll yeah. see if if this new purple tomato is actually embraced or if it's sort of not taken up yeah yeah uh, exactly that's what i'm curious about like i don't i don't know for sure that this will like sway the opinion in a certain direction i'm just very curious because now it's like it's not something that only the people who look for this kind of information know about their food just like some people read exactly the ingredient list or that know something about some some food manufacturing processes but this is now something that anybody can see and um so yeah, I'm curious how what what does what that does to the to the perception. And speaking of GMO and glyphosate and the stuff, uh, I found a small. I don't know how, how small. I always say small, but I have no idea how how big or small it is. I found a study um, where they um, looked at the influence of Roundup and glyphosate, and these are two separate things in this case uh, on uh, specific roundworms that are dwelling in the soil. Um, and they use very low concentrations of glyphosate, so the active compound, and Roundup, which is the trade 
product that's that's sold that is not only glyphosate but lots of like adjuvants and other chemicals in there that help with the activity um, some of them have like physical properties like glyphosate itself is quite hydrophobic so you have sort of detergents in there that actually help to um coat leaves or coat plants and that the glyphosate can actually enter the cells otherwise it would sort of just brush off like you would spray oil on a plant and it would just like uh, run off the plant um so they found that um these these worms these roundworms at very low concentrations of both glyphosate and roundup can uh, get convulsions um in yeah in these worms sort of like uh, epilepsis like effects so they are they are affected by the chemicals and interestingly an anti-epileptic drug removes these effects so that has something to do with like nervous signals which opens new questions about the safety of glyphosate um and what i found very important in this study is that they could show that roundup actually sort of the mix of chemicals is more effective and has like a stronger effect on these roundworms than the glyphosate alone which is important for the um for the regulatory decisions on this because a lot of it as has been discussed around the the compound like the chemical molecule glyphosate and not around Mm -hmm. the the actual product that's sold it also changes like they they used i think the most commonly used mix of roundup but there's different varieties of roundup that's sold for different purposes and i i wanted to bring this as well in here because i was always in the camp of rather trusting glyphosate i was rather saying um let's like it's an important tool in agriculture and we have major losses when we're not using it and studies like this also like the big it doesn't it didn't completely change my opinion because it's like it needs to be confirmed and stuff like it's one study is um always something where you have to be still a little careful with the like big conclusions that you draw from it um but still i like that that made me like wonder a little bit more about like life said i'm i'm and i don't know like it's 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 much more like in the gray waters like it's much more in like in a gray area where I find it harder to come to a conclusion from the outside whether or not it's safe because like some agency say the compound is safe some some say it's not safe um the majority say say it's safe but now we have studies like this that looks at roundworms and uh they they see an effect there so yeah that's <laughs> I wanted to bring that up just as a as, as a thing to to build opinions I don't know what it did to my opinion um to to be honest but I think yeah, it's important to to mention these things as well because I am fairly like um, pro, uh, like I would call it like technical agriculture, like using mm-hmm. like herbicides uh, in certain uh, in certain amounts and certain kinds of herbicides and using GMO, and um, so. I mean, this is the thing. Like in this context, you're talking not about safe. There's no absolute safe when yeah. you're playing with chemicals. The question is most good divided by least harm like that's what you're looking for right so even with your roundup glyphosate thing you could say that like roundup has more impact but if we're using pure glyphosate would we need to put much larger quantities on the plant to get it to go in so like yeah also that i mean (laughs) yeah we we've also seen studies linking it to like the bee gut health and stuff like that. So just to keep in mind, this is not the first thing that shows. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, some no. negative effects on little invertebrates, but um. Yeah. Yeah, 
here we are. I think from a sort of a scientific standpoint, I found it interesting that an anti-epileptic drug seemed to counter the effects, um, which then, like, just from a molecular perspective, gives us an idea how it works on some like nervous translations of of signals um, that are affected <laughs> by it. And but we can't be drugging the worms no, just no, to no, prevent no, no, them from having <laughs> tiny underground seizures because we're also adding, like this is getting yeah. so convoluted. Like. Yeah. Just add one more thing to Roundup, and it's an anti-epileptic drug um, that certainly won't have any effect on the workers spraying the chemical. No. <laughs> Yeah, so it's just it's it's another piece in the large and complicated puzzle of is it a good idea to use glyphosate at, or Roundup in large scales? And yeah, it it becomes increasingly hard to come for me to 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 have a, an opinion on that. That's why I wanted to put it here. Speaking of a piece in a large and complicated uh, puzzle, was that the wording you used? This is just a follow-up on something that we did touch on last week, and that is the horrifying world of retrograde signaling. There's a paper that came <laughs> out in The Plant Cell on the 8th of September by Alice Barkin's lab. Um, they've been working on this kind of retrograde signaling and, and chloroplast development and, and gene expression for a long time. And they sort of did a developmental gradient looking at different stages of the development of the photosynthesis in, in the chloroplast, like different um, chloroplast development stages. And they used normal plants, but they also used mutants, which didn't really know how to make their photosynthetic apparatus properly. And they used a comparative gene expression to sort of look at what was different depending on what, um, how, how well the organism could make chloroplasts, could make mm -hmm. functional chloroplasts. And they sort of used this to have an idea about how the signals were working. And based on this, they came up with some more clues about retrograde signaling from the chloroplast or from the plastid. So based on this quite heavy amount of work, they came up with the sort of three core plastid signals that are coordinating the development of photosynthesis, basically the, the development and differentiation of the photosynthetic apparatus. So the first signal is basically activating photosynthesis genes. And um, this requires the translation machinery of the plastid, the chloroplast. Um, the second basically is turning things off. So it's repressing the genes that are required for biogenesis. And that sort of um, comes at the time when the chloroplast is, is mature. So it's like, okay, stop now. We've, we've got what we need. And then they also found the, the third signal, which is related to how nutrients are available and, and used as the chloroplast is developing. So before it's developed, it actually is taking a lot of sort of nutrients and energy. And um, then at one point, it sort of can at least make its own carbon. And this is in turn linked to Tor, um, <laughs> which I mentioned last week as another one of these horror subjects. It's this central regulating hub of metabolism. Um, and it is, in fact, of course, involved in retrograde signaling as well. I'm, I'm almost certain that auxin and other <laughs> phytohormones are also playing a role there That's as well. I, I to ask, like, is, is, is the third yeah. one there as well? Everybody's <laughs> coming together. Yeah, and I, I, again, I haven't looked into this field in detail for a long time now, like 10, 15 years, but I'm sure there is. So anyway, <laughs> just to mention that this is all related to the development is also this this role of Tor, which um, sort of stops cells from proliferating and having this further cell development that's happening. And so all of you who are studying Tor, you're now also studying retrograde signaling. <laughs> Same goes the other way. Good luck, everyone. Have at it. <laughs>
so from from one complex internal signaling to complex external signaling nice. um <laughs> I'm, I found a story about uh, how plants communicate with each other. And this is something like we've mentioned many, many a times about um, mostly like broadleaf trees or also some grasses, for example, that they uh, um, emit volatile chemicals, uh, organic volatile compounds or uh, volatile organic compounds. That's usually the, the way they say it. Vox. Vox. And yeah, these travel with the wind and they can alert nearby plants uh, of certain dangers. Often it's like herbivore. Something is biting into a plant and then the the local leaf makes uh, these vox, these volatile organic compounds uh, that alerts other parts of the same plant. If it's a tree, for example, so like the, the branch on the bottom left alerts like the entire tree to be prepared. There's something biting me, so make some bitter compound so um, we're not eaten all. Uh, but then this signal is then also transmitted to other nearby trees, for example, and all of them, what they do is they amplify the signal. So um, it's whenever they see that signal coming they amplify it and they send it further so more things are reached like more more um, other trees are, are reached by the signal and can prepare their defenses in conifers however that was not known like we had no data on conifers doing that until now so now in finland researchers observed a similar process in conifers um, they looked at scots pine seedlings that were damaged by bark feeding uh, weevils and they realized they were also emitting large quantities of volatile chemicals into the air and um, when plants that were not previously damaged um, saw these chemicals they would also emit their own chemicals there and what they also found interestingly is that this emission behavior, so the volatile chemicals that they made and sent into the wind, that behavior changed drastically when the plants were grown under elevated ozone conditions, which is a sort of proxy for air pollution in general. Um, so that changed the way they emitted these compounds, but the the actual results, the, the responses were not significantly altered. So even though the signal got completely messed up the message was still received properly by the the plants and they would still ready their defenses and um same as if the the air was not polluted which is yeah it's 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 kind of weird um but i imagine that the plants evolved ways to even with sort of a confusing signal still make something of it or maybe they have just a very low threshold that they need to activate their defenses because it's better to be ready um and nobody's attacking than being attacked without knowing about it because like some other stuff in the air messed up the signal and they didn't know about it so conifers they are also using volatile compounds to communicate cat fact Today's cat fact is in fact about cockatoos. Cockatoos. I tried. Um, <laughs> I tried really hard to make that work and it didn't. This is something that was actually featured in the Nature's Briefing and there's a really nice um, article about it in the conversation. It's ultimately about research that came out in Current Biology this week sometime by Klump and colleagues. And the title of the article is, Is Bin Opening in Cockatoos Leading to an Innovation Arms Race with Humans? Yeah, and I, I found that as well. And I also wanted to bring that up because we always talk about evolutionary arms races of like some, some bugs and some plants. So and, good. And apparently like 
I don't know in that relationship between humans and cockatoos, who is the bug and who is the plant. Maybe we are the plants and they are the bugs. Yeah, so I think <laughs> the basic story is that cockatoos, um, they're pretty smart and they they like going in bins. Basically, there's food waste in bins and they want to get at it. So when people put their bins out to be collected, they would open the lids of the bin. They learned this very quickly. And they not only learned it, but then they taught their friends. So there was sort of social learning involved where one cockatoo figured it out and then he told all of his buddies and showed his buddies. And then all the cockatoos knew how to open the bins which is already a bit problematic because you've got a mess everywhere. And in fact, I remember growing up, like a lot of the bins, like all bins in Australia were basically designed to have some sort of bird protection mechanism. So crows <laughs> were the big problem in my school. They would just like get in there and start throwing things. And my school at one point just had to change all the bins and put these like very special heavy lidded locked bins so the crows couldn't get in and just like create chaos. Um, so, yeah, the people didn't want chaos all over their streets. It's quite disgusting. So they started coming up with ways to get around the cockatoos. And I quite like that there are different ways. So the the most common thing was just to put a heavy object mm -hmm. on top of the bin. But as the researchers note, the cockatoos learnt really quickly how to get rid of that. And one of the researchers actually mentioned that you can basically see the glee in the eyes of the bird as it pushes the brick onto the ground. <laughs> like, they're just like, tee-hee-hee, <laughs> and throwing it up. Um, so then they noticed that in the sort of suburbs of Sydney where these cockatoo attacks are really common, people were starting to come up with very innovative ways to try to protect their bins from cockatoos. And this went away from the original brick method to things like putting a doormat on top of the bin because it's just kind of like a weird floppy object that confuses the birds, I guess. Um, some people were sort of tying big plastic bottles on, which, again, maybe it's just confusing and makes it hard for the bird to like work out where to land and pick up the lid. The best one I saw was you wedge running trainers in the handle of the bin, so sort of like where you, you wheel the wheelie bin, you yeah, hold yeah, it. In the, in the hinge. In the hinge. And the trainers sort of put pressure on the hinge to make it hard to lift up, especially if you're cockatoo. But then when the bin is tipped over by the, the, um, the automatic vehicles that pick up the bins, the weight of the rubbish is enough to open that. So I like that one a lot because it's specifically designed to be just too heavy for the cockatoos, but it works fine yeah. under the normal scenarios like whereas the brick is actually not that great under the the normal scenario of an automatic yeah that's what that, that's what i wanted as well like that's the third player in this relationship that you have is the 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 trash workers who have to then pick up the bins and and throw them into the truck um because then they have to also work with the 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 protection methods they have to get around those as well because they actually want to empty the bins on a For, for the people who put out the bins. So it's a really yeah, complicated I, triangle of different things, needs and um, and demands that they have. Yeah, I'm not sure if like you just end up lo losing your brick each time if that also gets thrown into the rubbish, but that also seems not... Not great. Anyway, the overall point of this is that the, the researchers were sort of doing some studies and also interviewing people. And they found out that, in fact, yes, people were developing these techniques. Yes, they were aware of the cockatoos and that's what they were doing. But they found that there was social learning. So there was social learning in the cockatoos as they taught each other how to, like, beat the bins. And then there was social learning in the people, they think, as well, because they noticed that... Um, different residents like the sort of the mechanisms used were clustered so it looked like people were 
are learning from their neighbours or maybe talking to their neighbours to find out different ways to um, beat the cockatoos. So now this is really kind of a, <laughs> a natural ecosystem example of an arms race. So we started with bins. The cockatoos got in. People put things on the cockatoo. That's a one-upping. Then the cockatoos worked out how to like push stuff off. So there's another level for the cockatoos. And now the humans are also teaching each other how to go away from the bricks to the better method. So let's see what the cockatoos <laughs> do next. I'm predicting they're going to get opposable thumbs and work <laughs> from there. But like, yeah, I think that's the... Oh, I figured out how to tip over the whole bin. But I just wonder, what's their glee in the eyes of the humans that learned how to put another <laughs> way, <laughs> like another heavier object on the bin to protect it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah right in in i linked an article to science alert um in the show notes there's a video in there where you see a cockatoo like slowly pushing off a brick from one of these bins yeah the the conversation article also has a few embedded articles and you can also see pictures and in fact like figure one of the original current biology journal is sort of different mechanisms that are being used to protect the bin from cockies so it's very important science <laughs> is, is, happening is here. cocky the australian slang for cockatoo yeah. yeah i mean i could have guessed like it's <laughs> it sounds kind of rude but also cute and it's for a native bird so yeah that's that must be the right do you know word. how i mean it's this thing where you, they bob up and down your dance cocky dance cocky you know like do a little <laughs> thing with their head dance cocky dance yeah and then the, the, the wings out and the, yeah. the feathers <laughs> on top <laughs> yeah <laughs> beautiful i think yeah this is always my my thing of people are scared of the the snakes and the spider of australia but you should be much more scared of the birds <laughs> yeah i think like knowing you now for several years that that changed my opinion on that like i'm much more afraid of being swooped by magpies or like, my, my stuff taken apart by some cockatoos or other yeah, yeah, like, sort of cockatoo just birds. push a brick onto you <laughs> very like old school cartoon just like with a look of glee in his eyes <laughs> yes and with this, I think it's time to end today's show. Um, thank you for listening. If you want to get in touch with us, if you have any feedback, you can reach me on Twitter. That's at Plants Pipettes. Um, on Facebook sometimes and Instagram also sometimes. It's at Plants and Pipettes and there you can find me. And we also have a website where we have a lot of old articles that we've written about various things that we love in the world of plant science. Yeah, you find that at plantsandpipettes.com and if you feel so please rate us on podcast platforms it's always very useful to us our opening and closing music is caravana by philip gross thank you for listening and goodbye